Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Pieces of History with me, Colin McGrath. As you may already know, in each episode I delve into some renowned and lesser known events throughout history. This week I'll be looking into the Gang of Neville, a group of criminals, terrorists according to some, who committed a series of murders, burglaries, thefts and robberies in Belgium from 1982 to 1985. So before we get into the background of the story, let's take a look at where the events took place. North Brabant, also officially called Brabant, is a province in the south of the Netherlands. It borders the provinces of South Holland and Gerland to the north, Limburg to the east, Zeeland to the west and Antwerp to the south. The area is famous in the Low Countries for the beautiful countryside, the historical inner cities of Eindhoven, Tilburg, Breda and the provincial capital Herstergogenbosch and the Du Bosch National Park. The cities in the region offer a wealth of historical monuments including cathedrals, city walls and courtyards. The gang first came to prominence on the 13th of March 1982 when two men wearing dark outfits holding a single 12 gauge shotgun broke into the armoury of a small weapons shop in Dinant in Belgium just north of the French border. According to the shopkeeper, one of the suspects, the perceived leader of the gang, was described as being between 30 and 40 years old, very tall and slender, about 2 metres or 6 foot 4, with light brown or blonde hair. The other men looked slightly older, roughly 50 years old, with a tougher manner which gave the impression to the shopkeeper that he shouldn't be messed with. He was physically impressive and stood around 6 feet tall. Two months later, on the 10th of May, a man was parking his Austin Allegro along a street in Exise, an area in southern Brussels, when he was confronted by two strangers with French accents. One man was described as being very tall and was wearing a cap to hide his features. The other was smaller, with a moustache, and his hair was styled as wavy and grain. They stole the car thanks to long barrel revolvers being shown to the very frightened man. Later that same day, a Volkswagen Santana was stolen in Limbeck, 23 kilometres away. It turns out that the Austin Allegro was low on petrol and was in poor condition, in no way suitable for what they had planned. Just to show how brazen these men were, they stole the Santana from a car showroom that evening. The gang didn't reappear for three months until Saturday, August 14th, 1982, with an escalation of violence. A tall man with a heavy set build wearing a balaclava kept watch at the front of the shop holding either a rifle or a sawn-off shotgun when those reports seemed to be sketchy about the details. A second man broke into the shop and they both proceeded to search for what seemed like random goods. In this break-in they stole wine, champagne and some coffee. At this point a neighbour was alerted to the noise by the shattering glass and made a call to the police about the disturbance at the shop. Whenever the police arrived on the scene they quickly entered a gunfight. Thankfully there were no fatalities but one police officer was injured. The two men made a getaway in the blue Volkswagen Santana stolen in May. The thing about this incident that really bemused the police is why two men would want to start a gunfight over wine, champagne and some coffee. In September the gang changed tack and sped up the criminality and brazen violence. On the 30th three gunmen showed up at a weapon store named Delska Armoury, this time in a town called Warov, just outside of Brussels. And this time there were three men, not two. The incident began just before noon when the men forced the owner of the shop and two customers onto the floor. Probably under huge stress, the two patrons and the shop owner were slow to get to the ground as instructed and so they were beaten by the gunmen in the first act of physical violence the gang had shown since their emergence. The gang knew exactly what they wanted. 
they were able to seize over 15 firearms of varying makes and models, including submachine guns and the ammunition to go with it. It was obvious to the police that the gang were not just in for a smash and grab, they knew what they wanted as they were efficient in their search of the shop. A lone police officer who was patrolling the area responded to the call. Unfortunately for him, the gang turned out to be more dangerous than expected. The gang, making their way to the Volkswagen Santana, fatally wounded the police officer during their getaway. A team of gendarmes, who are essentially a military police force with law enforcement duties among the civilian population within the region, were preparing to seize the gang using a vehicle of theirs to block off one of the escape routes. Unfortunately for the gendarmes, this tactic didn't work as the gang simply rammed their car into a parked vehicle and while exiting their own began to shoot. During the firefight, two gendarme police were shot but thankfully they survived their injuries. Like something from a Hollywood film, the criminals made their escape in a smoking Santana which was very badly damaged from the initial crash into the police vehicle. Local police would later find the car on fire in a local wood, the gang obviously setting it alight to cover any potential evidence that might be found from in it. The thing about this robbery is the way it was planned by the gang. Observers have said that they used military tactics against military police while also deploying heavy gunfire in the form of the machine guns. Something else that went in the favour of the gang is the fact that the gendarmes in the area of Wav were vastly under-equipped and outgunned by the group. Police at the time were completely mystified. Why would a very heavily armed gang want to cause such devastation for some guns and previously some confectionery goods? After this incident, the makeup of the gang was starting to come into focus. The leader, it seemed, had some distinctive features that made him stand out, almost literally. In all of the robberies to date, witnesses had remarked about the height of the man compared to the other assailants, so he was now dubbed the Giant. This name would now become feared in Belgium over the next couple of years. For the other members of the group, the police have been given various descriptions such as age, height, body shape and features. The differing characteristics of each member led the police to think that the crimes were being committed by multiple gangs and different people. The last attack left the police in no doubt. The weaponry and the type of robbery committed confirmed to them that it was a gang of three men who were possibly military trained including weapons handling and vehicles at high speed. The other two members were now given names. The second, who was seen to be older than the other two and appeared to be the getaway driver, was called the Old Man. The third member of the group, and also the other who led the shooting along with the giant, was given a more straightforward name, the Killer. Once these pseudonyms had been put in place, the gang needed a name. At this point, locals, the police and the media began to call the thieves the Gang of Neville, in Dutch-speaking media or the Gang of Brabant, reflecting the area they terrified. They also picked up several other names including the Brabant Killers and the Mad Killers of Brabant in French-speaking broadcasting. After the robbery on September 30th, the gang once again lay dormant. Three months later, on Wednesday, December 23rd, two days before Christmas, they reappeared. Mark van den Ank, who was driving to visit his father, who was a caretaker for the Beersel Castle, a stunning 12th century medieval castle located in Bersel in Flemish Brabant in Belgium. If you get a chance to google it while you're listening, you really should, it's stunning. Mark was also a cook at the restaurant where his father worked. As he was driving to the grounds with his wife and children, Mark beeped his horn several times but his dad never appeared. This was very unusual for Jose as he was usually very punctual, always waiting to be picked up. Mark got out of his car and went to check on his father. As he walked up to the room, he knocked a few times and didn't get a response. What he came across next 
absolutely shocked him. Jose had been bound, undressed and was lying on his right side in his bed. His wrists were tied behind his back with a scarf belonging to FC Bruges, the football team he supported. Jose had been shot multiple times, sources vary on how many, but it was between 5 and 7 in the head. What police investigators had to do next was to learn exactly why the 72 year old man was executed in such a manner. Was Jose van den Eyck killed because he surprised a burglary in progress? Was he shot because he could have been an incriminating witness? During the investigation, it was established that the gang had stolen 15 Royal Schwab plates. If you're not too sure of what they are, there are hand-decorated plates that you might find on the wall of someone's grandparents' house. Again, like the previous incident in September, police were stumped. Nothing from the past of Jose van der Ank seemed to explain the way in which he was murdered. It also turned out that he was tortured, which was rare for Belgian police at the time. But something similar happened a few months previously. A double murder happened in Anderlecht by a member of the Westland New Post, an extreme Belgian right-wing organisation. In a twist to the tale during their investigation, the Brussels Judicial Police discovered that Jose Van Eyck had volunteered with the Fangalists, the followers of Franco during the Spanish Civil War. Could there be a link between the two cases? The commissioner who would lead the investigation at the time decided to look into the murder in more detail. Another question was asked, did Jose Van Den Eyck know the killers? Unfortunately, this would never be discovered. Again, why would a group of armed men break into a 72-year-old's home, torture him and then shoot him multiple times in order to steal 15 plates? Were they looking for information on someone else? Was he a witness to something? The night of December 23rd threw up more questions than answers. So before I move on, how do we know that the gang of Neville were involved in the murder of Jose Van Eyck and it wasn't just a random shooting? Belgian police made a breakthrough several years later when they uncovered weapons belonging to the gang, it was confirmed that they had been used to shoot and murder Jose Van Eyck. As 1982 drew to a close, the identity and raison d'etre behind the gang was still a mystery. Unfortunately for the citizens of the region, the gang were only getting started. On Wednesday, January 12, 1983, a car was discovered on the side of the road on the outskirts of Brussels. As it had been sitting there for quite some time, locals became suspicious. Once the police got to the scene, they found a body inside the boot of the car. The owner, Angelo Constantine, had been already been in there for a number of days. Constantine, originally from Athens, was a husband and father of two children. He had lived in the city for many years and earned his living as a taxi driver. The autopsy showed three bullets penetrated the head and above the neck. Another autopsy showed that there was a fourth bullet that hit under his left ear. The investigators found that Angelo was murdered in his taxi by customers he picked up at around a quarter past one between the previous Friday night and Saturday morning. He reported to the taxi station that he had a ride leaving from Place Flagey and Xyz. To narrow the site where the murder could have taken place, the taxi meter showed that the shooting must have taken place less than 10 kilometres from the original pickup spot. The investigation was able to show that when leaving Anderlecht at the beginning of the motorway from Bergen, the barrel of the weapon must have been at the neck of Constantine and then he drove the taxi to a deserted place on the side of the highway. Reports showed that the shots must have been fired from someone who was sitting behind a driver. Mud splatters found on Constantine's trousers suggest that his body was dragged over chalky ground. This time the gang took more than confectionery goods and plates. They stole a letter bag, tens of thousands of francs, identity papers, a category B driving license and then placed the body in the back of the car. So again, how was this case linked to the Gang of Neville? 
while the four bullets that struck Angelou were fired by the same weapon as the six bullets removed from the head of Jose Van Eyck on December the 23rd. The killer or killers quite clearly were on a rampage without motive. Knowing that this information could unnerve the local population of the region, the judicial police decided that no publicity should be given to the case. The gang would make their next appearance in February by committing armed robbery of a supermarket in Rheinsart just outside of Brussels. Thankfully no one was hurt during the incident. The gang fired warning shots into the ceilings, windows and shelves of the grocery store to distract customers and staff. Those inside had to die for cover but thankfully no patrons received any injuries. The three men made off with roughly 600,000 Belgian francs or about $20,000. Exactly two weeks later the gang robbed another supermarket, this time in UC, about 25 kilometers from the last robbery. This time two men exited the car and left the driver behind at the wheel. Again warning shots were fired into the store while a second man armed with a baton ran to the manager's office. A member of staff was summoned to open the safe and the second member of the gang began stacking the money into a plastic bag. The robbery turned violent when the first member of the gang noticed a witness outside running to a nearby petrol station possibly to alert the police. The gunman fired shots in the direction of the man sending him to the ground. Thankfully he would survive the shooting and he recovered. The two members of the gang gaining another $20,000 worth of francs got back into the waiting car and sped off south. On March 3rd another armed robbery took place, this time in Halle, just west of Waterloo. Again the gang, as was their trademark, hit a supermarket. At 7.30pm, three men, all armed with weaponry, entered the store and like the previous raids, one gunman stopped at the entrance with a short barrel rifle and ordered the customers and staff to lay on the ground. The other two gang members went upstairs and headed straight into the office of branch manager Walter Verstappen where the store employees were in the process of counting money. In a planned move, one of the gunmen took Mr Verstappen to another room where the safe was and asked him to open it. A few minutes later the noise of shots rang out from the room with the safe and the two clerks were left fearing for the well-being of the branch manager. When the police arrived at the scene, they discovered Mr Verstappen dead, having been shot in the head. The safe had been opened and all contents including $18,000 stolen. As they were making their getaway from the office, one of the gang members in another brutal assault hit one of the clerks on the head from an instrument which was described as a bat because he dared to turn his head to see what was happening. The driver had got back into the car by this stage and the three men shot off in a dark VW Gulf. The car was spotted heading towards a ring road on the outside of Brussels to the motorway to Bergen. The police investigation centred on the man who was hit by the bat as the gang were leaving, Jules Knockhart. Mr Knockhart gave the description of a man of about 1m78 to 1m80 with an average ball athletic physique. The other witnesses stated that another member of the gang was tall, probably 1m85, wearing a worn grey-blue raincoat, dark grey pants and black shoes. He hid his face under a black balaclava edged in a lighter colour, probably yellow. The skin visible around his eyes was covered with a dark paint, a kind of makeup like commandos use for night exercises. Another member of the gang was wearing a dark balaclava and long dark raincoat. The murder in the supermarket in Hall was assigned to the Brussels magistrate. On the following day, March 4th, the owners of the supermarket, Colroyt, announced to the press that it was offering a 5 million bounty to anyone who could bring the police to the trail of the killers, but like the other robberies, the case went cold.
On May 7th, the gang again robbed a supermarket, this time in Huang Guangs, about 40 kilometers from the last robbery in Hal. Thankfully, in this incident, no one was killed. The summer went by without incident until September 10th, when the gang came back with two robberies in quick succession. In the first, in Temsey, they changed their modus operandi and robbed a textile factory. This wasn't an ordinary textile factory. It focused on a very specific market. Tents, backpacks, kit bags, tool bags, camouflage vests and protective vests. Goods in which security forces and the military were very interested. At 2.30am, Hector Risk got out of bed. Looking out of his bedroom window, he could see a car unknown to him, which was partly situated on the bicycle path near the home of his neighbour. Next, a masked man stepped from the car. Knowing that he was being watched, he suddenly points his weapon in the direction of Hector's home. On seeing this, Hector falls to the ground and his bedroom window smashes from the bullet that has just been fired from the shadowy figure. Another neighbour is startled from her sleep by the shooting. Like Hector, she wants to look through the window to find out what's going on. She too is immediately attacked, but the bullet misses its target. As the police arrive at the scene, they discover the body of 26-year-old Joseph Broders and his badly hurt wife, 25-year-old Linda Van Hoffen. Joseph, who worked as a night guard at the factory, and Linda, a concierge there too, had two children, Sharon who was three, and Patricia two months. It turns out that the gang used cutting torches and blow torches to make their entrance into the factory and as they were making their way through the building they stumbled onto Yusuf working the night shift along with Linda who was possibly keeping her husband company that evening. As the gang came face to face with the married couple they fired a volley of shots. Four hit Joseph four times in the head and Linda was also severely injured by the shooting. She was rushed to hospital where she was in a coma for several weeks. During the investigation, the police took a keen interest in the objects stolen from this robbery. The gang seemed to be only interested in seven prototypes of a technically high quality bulletproof vest. These had been developed in the utmost secrecy at the factory owned by the Willock van Langheim company. It was obvious to the investigators that the gang had inside knowledge of this equipment and it was becoming apparent that they either had connections inside the military or were possibly former military men themselves. The next incident took place just seven days after, on September 17th, in another supermarket, this time in Neville's, and the place which would christen the gang's name. In what became known as a massacre at the Colroyd of Neville, the gang suddenly had a surge of violence. At 1.26am, the alarm bell of the warehouse in Neville echoed in the surveillance centre of the company Colroyd in Halle. Two gendarmes from Neville arrived five minutes later to check out what was going on, then gunshots. Officer Marcel Moreau is killed instantly. His colleague is injured but makes it out alive by pretending to be dead. Once the dust had settled at the scene, the bodies of Mr Jacques Vores, 49, and Miss Elsie DeWitt, also 49, who have been shot multiple times, are discovered by police. The facts become clear once the police began their investigations. The gang had triggered the alarm while they worked an iron gate with a cutting torch at the back of the warehouse an isolated building about 100 metres from the motorway ramps to Paris. Thinking that it was a false alarm, Lieutenant Carew orders two of his men to investigate. Marcel Moreau, 31, and Jean-Marie Lacroix, 30, leave by police car to carry out the investigation. After the two police officers arrived at the scene, they were greeted by a hail of bullets. Lacroix took cover behind the police car, firing his gun twice in succession and again shortly after. Moreau tells him to call for reinforcements, 
and is instantly hit by two bullets in his ankle and lands on his back. He is shot again from the getaway vehicle parked nearby. Marcel Moreau is hit in the throat. Next, in what turned out to be an execution-style killing, he is shot by three rifle bullets fired up close to his head. Lacroix had the awareness to lie down on his steering wheel and to keep still, as if he was dead, with legs hanging outside the police vehicle. This, it turned out, saved his life. He still didn't escape that easily though. In what looked like an effort to finish off the job, one of the gang members fired a shot at his neck. Thankfully the bullet ricocheted off an epaulette, a type of ornamental shoulder piece on his uniform, and saved his life. It was at this time that Lacroix was given the time to distinguish, in the beam of the police car, the silhouette of a man 1 meters 80 centimeters tall, of average physique, wearing a 3 quarter length raincoat and a beard. After the gang leave, Lacroix raises the alarm. It's a short radio message that says, Marcel has been killed, fast, reinforcements. But what about the other victims? Whenever the police arrived at the scene, they discovered two bullet pierced corpses of a woman and a man, which were hidden carelessly under two shopping carts. The two bodies were identified as those of M. Jacques Forez, a 49-year-old businessman registered in Nock, but actually living in Yuki, together with his companion, Miss Elsie DeWitt, a 49-year-old secretary from the Jordan Strat in Brussels who worked in the administration of the capital. The couple had left Paris early in the evening and made their way to refuel at the pumps in the Colwright car park at around 1.10am. As he was opening his petrol tank, Jacques Forez must have seen one or two individuals and for some unknown reason they immediately fired upon him. Could it be that he had seen the faces of the men that would go on to rob the warehouse just 15 minutes later? In the blink of an eye, Jacques Forez was murdered with three bullets to the head. Miss DeWitt faced a gruesome death of her own. She had remained in the car, witnessed the drama before her, and leaving her shoes in the car, ran to her companion. The gang took aim at Mrs DeWitt without hitting her. Unfortunately, the gang chased her down and she was caught. A cone fell out of her pocket and her glasses tumbled to the floor while she tried to defend herself. She was then dragged to the back of the Colwright supermarket and shot twice, first in the right cheek, then in the right eye. The gang then dragged her body to the railing next to the parking lot, then tried to lift it and throw it to the bushes on the other side of the fence. That didn't work and so the body was hastily hidden under some shopping carts, a harrowing way for a life to end. The incident continued when police were looking for the gang who committed these terrible acts. While chasing several vehicles along the road, two cars slowed down as if to let the police go by, then suddenly bullets came hailing down from a white Mercedes. Police officer Benoit Ruse, who was driving the police car, is hit in the head but still manages to maintain control of his vehicle. To escape the projectiles, his colleague dived to the bottom of the vehicle. The white Mercedes speeds off into the distance. A second car, a Saab 900, which was also used by the gang that night, was found to have dozens of fingerprints in the car, on the body of the car, on a plastic bag found inside the vehicle, and on the car jack that was removed from the tool bag. Blood traces and less striking but equally valuable indications, such as blonde hair, were also found. Once again, the gang had wreaked terrible violence on unsuspecting members of the public and then fled in a hail of bullets from police. So it's about this point in our story of the gang in the ville that I'm going to take a break. When doing research for the story, I realised very quickly that I would need to split it up into two parts as there's just so much to cover. I hope you can join me in part two as I'll be continuing with the gang's murderous rampage through the streets of Belgium, the motives for the gang, 
the conspiracy theories that swirl around the old man, the giant and the killer. And finally, some recent events in the timeline of the story that have happened as recently as January 2020. Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Colin McGrath, with additional material by Anya McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.